This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, and welcome to In Focus Sport from Control Risks Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Alicia Fitterman, an Associate Director in the Compliance, Forensics and Intelligence team here at Control Risks. In each In Focus Sport episode, my colleague, John Brown, the head of the forensics practice across Europe, Middle East and Africa, will sit down with a guest to discuss their views and insights on a range of current themes linked to the integrity of sports. Today's episode is the first in a two-part special where John sits down with Kieran Maguire, writer of The Price of Football and co-host of the popular podcast by the same name. Kieran keeps himself busy. He's a chartered accountant, lecturer at the University of Liverpool, and he also frequently makes appearances and does interviews in the media. In this first episode, John and Kieran sit down to discuss some of the biggest financial challenges faced by the football teams of today, particularly in light of uncertainties linked to COVID-19. Kieran also describes the difficulties that some clubs have when it comes to striking a balance between their desire to achieve sporting success and the importance of making financial decisions grounded in common sense. Kieran, firstly, thanks for joining us today for the Control Risks podcast. We're going to be discussing some very topical issues affecting the world of football. For the benefit of those listening, Kieran is a football finance expert and a lecturer on finance and accounting at Liverpool University with a focus on football. His views have been very much in demand in recent months as football's trying to navigate the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. We've obviously had a, a raft of tournaments and competitions suspended and then restarted without supporter attendance in most cases. Clubs and, and leagues really everywhere are experiencing financial hardship. It's a cause of real concern to football fans everywhere. We'll come back to this shortly, but Kieran, maybe first of all, you could just talk to the listeners about your background, both personal and professional, as it relates to football. Yeah, I I, uh, I qualified as a as a chartered accountant many many moons ago, but I've, I've worked uh, most of the last thirty years in in some form of of training, either in formal academia or working as a trainer for the uh, the IB industry in terms of their analysts and associates and people of that nature with regards to an understanding of accounting, modelling, valuation, that, that type of thing. And then I've always been a huge football fan. And I found that with my undergraduates, if I wandered into the class and say, hey, hey guys, have you seen the latest results from BMW, Apple or Facebook? I'll get 200 faces staring into their smartphones as they as they continue to chat to each other on WhatsApp and Weibo. But if I walk into a classroom and say, you never guess, Manchester United have increased the uh, the amount that they owe to other football clubs from £13 million to 258 over the last five years. Does that sound unusual? Ears prick up because... Football transcends traditional boundaries. And so therefore, I've sort of used it as a Trojan horse to to teach finance. Um, and rightly or wrongly, football finance has become a topic which has uh, occupied not just the, the back pages, but the business pages and the front pages of newspapers. And he's popular with other forms of broadcast as well. I think only this morning, Karen Brady, who's the, the chief executive at West Ham United Football Club, she was on talking about the nature of finances. So it's become a bigger subject than perhaps it ought to be. But I, I just happen to have fallen on my feet. And you've written a book called The Price of Football and host a very popular podcast with the same name. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Yes. Well, again, it was sort of purely by accident. I was on BBC One Breakfast talking about one of the one of the TV deals just being signed by the Premier League, and a book publisher was watching it and got in contact with me at university. And one of the things that, that my own students have always complained about is that there's there's not a textbook on football finance as such. So I was sort of more pushed than wanted to do it myself. But it took me about two and a half years of research into sort of the history of deals, the different types of revenues, costs and so on to build up a, an overall picture of of the club. So that book came out in January, coinciding with COVID. And I come from a, a sort of a fairly sort of working class background. So all of the, the royalties from the book 100% are going to the Trussell Trust, which is a very good food bank charity. The podcast I run with stand-up comedian, presenter, he's the associate producer of Have I Got News For You, Kevin Day. I think many, many football fans will be familiar with Kevin from his days on Match of the Day 2 and Channel 4 Cricket and things of this nature. We were put together by our producer guy who, who thought it would be a good idea. Both myself and Kevin took the view that nobody's going to be interested in it and there wasn't going to be enough material to, to keep us occupied. So we started off in September 2019. We, we did a, a story with the demise of Berry Football Club. We've now had over 100 shows. We've, we've gone from one 20-minute show a week to two shows a week. We've had about 1.2 million downloads. We've been listened to in 157 different countries. From my point of view, as, as an academic, it's been an absolute delight to work with a with a professional broadcaster who is also very, very funny. And as an avid listener of the podcast and somebody who's read the book, I can thoroughly recommend them to the people that are listening to us today. So, Kieran, the, the financial challenges that are facing sport, they're really out of the press at the moment. When it comes to football specifically, what would you say are the biggest challenges that are facing clubs in the current environment? The biggest challenge is that historically, football has had a balancing act between the achievement of sporting goals and financial common sense. And that balance has too often, in my opinion, gone towards the, the sporting success end of things because the, the, the standard rules of business, which is profit maximization, revenue maximization, control of costs, balance budgets, forecasts, they go out the window because a football manager would historically go into the owner's office, the chief executive office and says, if we sign player X for only X million pounds, that could be the difference between making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. And the owners who who, who tend to be ego-based rather than common sense-based, they're fantastic businessmen in their own particular industries, and they think that they can transfer that knowledge into football. They tend to indulge managers. They tend to indulge football fans because they want to be popular. And also, they, they tend to indulge their own egos. And, and you, you put those together. And we have the crazy situation that, uh, that football in the second tier here of England, I've got the data in front of me, and of the, the last eight years, seven of those wages have exceeded revenue. Uh, and on the eighth year, wages were 99% of revenue, which if you think about it, doesn't actually leave very much money to sign football players, to put petrol in the mower, to cut the grass, to pay for the floodlights uh, and all of the other running costs that you'd expect in any line of business. So it, it's a business which was in a very vulnerable position to any form of risk 
or at any time or any form of economic downturn. And clearly what we've had as a result of COVID is the, the, the single biggest macroeconomic event probably since the Second World War. Are there any leagues where the problem is particularly acute? I think you mentioned the lower divisions in the UK. Are there other leagues where similar problems exist? There are issues all across Europe. I monitor to those, but not to the same extent as the UK. I think the UK is unique in the sense that the Premier League is so successful that it's created a a huge gap between itself and the division immediately below. So the Premier League television deal will give a club that finishes bottom of the table around about £94-95 million. Now, that is more than Bayern Munich from winning the Bundesliga every year. So the Premier League has become very successful. And therefore, if you see something successful, you want to be part of it. The clubs in the championship, their TV deal is worth around about £2.5 million a year. So can you see the the incentive to gamble, to achieve that success, to get up to the Premier League is huge. Then we, we drop it at a division below the championship and the, the TV money drops by 80% of the, the EFL TV deal goes to the championship, 12% to the division below, 8% to the, to the final division. So there are financial incentives to, to gamble, to, to achieve promotion to the division above. The problem is only three clubs can be promoted. And that results in self-interest overriding common sense as more and more clubs do these incredible gambles. The worst case scenario that we we presently have in in English football is that there is one club that is paying wages of 226% of revenue. Now, you put that into any other line of business and you don't need to be a consultant. You you don't even need to be a, a GCSE economics student to say, well, that really doesn't look very sensible from a financial perspective. But unfortunately, common sense, as I've inferred earlier, really does go out of the window because it's replaced by people being seduced. As far as the rest of Europe is concerned, those step-ups between individual divisions are far more gradual. And therefore, the incentive to, to overspend does not exist to the same extent. We had the issues with Berry last year and then issues with Wigan and, and Macclesfield this year, with all of them entering into sort of various different insolvency processes. Do you think there are going to be more insolvent clubs in the UK over the course of the next sort of six to nine months? We have certainly very close to it. South End United Football Club was subject to a winding up order only a few weeks ago. So they were they were very close uh, and somehow their owner managed to find the money to to pay HMRC. There is an ongoing risk in terms of football clubs being unable to maintain any form of balanced budget. What we have seen as a result of the policies introduced by the Chancellor is that many clubs have adopted furlough. Many clubs have taken advantage of pay delay in terms of PAYE and national insurance contributions. So so from a cash flow perspective, and as we all know, cash flow is critical in any form of distress scenario, then they are managing to limp along. There has been a package accepted by the, the top tier of English football, the Premier League, for the Leagues 1 and 2. That package is a combination of grants and loans. I believe that's been accepted. That will help. There are ongoing discussions between central government 
and the the football authorities with some form of support. Now, there's political issues here. It's it's very difficult, and I understand where where the government's coming from. It's very difficult to to be seen to be giving financial support to an industry where we've effectively got one division in football, which is which is an outlier. Which which I mentioned to you, the the English Championship. The average salary of a, a first team player in that division is around about eight hundred thousand pounds per annum. You try selling that to a taxpayer, say, well, we're going to offer a financial rescue package to to that division. And the taxpayers are going to turn around and say, well, hold on, you know, I'm, I'm on minimum wage or I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on average wage of, you know, was it 26, 27,000 pounds a year? I've, I've lost all my overtime. I've got members of my family on furlough. And you are suggesting that, that we offer uh, financial support to people who, over the course of their careers, over the course of their contracts, most footballers are on three or four year contracts in that division, are going to be millionaires. It's a tough gig to sell. And I think the government has done some things right and has done some things wrong, but it is a challenge. The government is saying football should sort out its own house. And you can understand why that has uh, some merit. It's, you know, from a populist point of view, it, it's ticking all the right boxes, but it is inconsistent with the, the nature of other industries. So I work with Kevin, who who works in the uh, in the entertainment industry. And as he says, you, you're not getting large theatres offering to help out small theatres during the course of the summer. The same goes for restaurant chains and so on. It's a delicate balancing act. I think self-interest has to be set aside. But unfortunately, the, the, the nature of the industry is that it is very much self-interest because you're always trying to win the next match. If you set self-interest aside, you, you just say to the opposition, let's draw or I tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll let you win instead of us this week because you've not won for a month or two. Yeah, fo- football doesn't work like that. To compare it to traditional industries, I think, is a challenge because it both needs competition because you are playing against other teams, but at the same time, you want to destroy the competition just like you do in any company in terms of increasing market share and increasing revenues and having a financial advantage. And we've started to see some clubs change hands. Charlton is an example, I think, of one club that's in transition towards new ownership and Roma in Italy. I read something yesterday about potentially Sunderland being sold too. So do you envisage that being a trend? Do you think that there are going to be more clubs that will be changing hands? And if so, who do you think would be interested in acquiring football clubs in this environment? The football market has always been buoyant. We're effectively in a scenario now where football clubs are viewed as distressed assets. So Charlton Athletic Football Club were effectively sold for a pound. You've mentioned Berry Football Club. They went for the same amount. Uh, same happened at Bolton. So there are opportunities but what, what you're doing is, is that if you do acquire a football club, you are acquiring a business which has ongoing financial commitments. And I do anticipate that that market will continue to have a lot of positive interest for a variety of reasons. First of all, we are in distressed asset scenarios. So you mentioned Sunderland Football Club. The, the owner was looking for £37.6 million, which is a very strange amount to put into the public domain a few months ago. My understanding is that the sale is going for around about £22 million. We've just seen this, I think, yesterday that uh, two Hollywood actors, Ryan Reynolds and I've forgotten the name of the other guy, but they have acquired Wrexham Football Club. Now, Wrexham Football Club isn't even in the the top four divisions of the, the football tier. They've been seduced by the romance of it. And you know, they've managed to buy Wrexham Football Club for, for two million. Well, they're rather they effectively bought it for nothing. They're committing to put in two million with a view to 
taking it to higher levels. And from their point of view, that's an awful lot cheaper than buying into an American franchise. You, know, you, you see the likes of, of major Hollywood stars and people from the music industry are getting involved in the NBA and, and the NFL and National Hockey League and so on. The amount of money which is changing hands in those transactions, we're, we're talking uh, you know, hundreds of millions because you're buying a franchise as opposed to a, a sporting organization. And with a franchise, you've got no relegation. You've got security in, in the form of effectively well-known revenue streams from year to year. If we were operating in a non-COVID environment, of course. The price at which you can buy a football club is, is one thing. Clearly, there's also been a lot of discussion with regards to Newcastle United and, and their owner, Mike Ashley. Newcastle fans are split with regards to Mike Ashley. Half of them loathe him and half of them loathe him a lot, would be my assessment. But from a financial perspective, he's, he's run the club pretty well. So whoever inherits Newcastle United from him is actually in a strong position because it's got a relatively low cost base. It has been breaking even now in, in recent seasons or on quite a regular basis. Newcastle was up for sale for £300 million. That deal collapsed due to political issues because the, the potential owners was a Saudi Arabian investment fund. And there are criteria which the, the Premier League employ. There's a lot of finger pointing as, as to what's happened with that particular deal. But as, as I'm sure you're aware, deals are never properly dead. So you know, we could have um, this one rising from the ashes in due course. There's benefits in terms of price. Sterling is is low. So we are seeing a lot of interest coming from overseas, especially the US. I think US investors see the, the value of non-traditional income streams being vastly underrepresented in, in English football. And therefore, bargains can be acquired with a view to uh, selling the clubs on. We've even seen a couple of months ago uh, a Texan-based private equity company come in to, to bid for 20% of the English Football League. That was rejected. Nobody's ever managed quite to work out why. So there's a lot of interest because the view is that the industry itself hasn't run itself necessarily very well financially. And therefore, if, if you come in and, and you introduce uh, better financial controls, if you do have some form of magic wand to discover talent cheap and sell it on at a much higher price, and, and there are clubs that are using data science algorithms and so on to, to go through that. I think it's a classic example in Brentford Football Club in London, who is owned by a guy whose company just does that. They are data-based. As more and more people observe this, they, they can get the best of both worlds in that there is a potential positive financial return coupled with glamour. And football is very glamorous. There's only 20 Premier League football clubs in existence who are hosting Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea and all of these globally known brands. So there's lots of people that own a yacht in Monaco. There's lots of people that have an apartment in Monaco. But you could be the only person in Monaco that owns a Premier League football club because there's only 20 to go through. And some of them are already owned by sovereign wealth funds in the form of Manchester City. We've got oligarchs such as Roman Abramovich at Chelsea. We've got American billionaires such as Stan Kroenke owning Arsenal. It is a very seductive industry. It gives you an element of kudos if you're a high net worth individual, which sets you apart from your peers and, and the benefits of that are that you can invite your friends to, we're hosting Liverpool uh, next weekend. Uh, would, you, would you like to join me in the director's box? How many people are in a position to be able to do that? And that, that gives, gives these very wealthy people 
an opportunity to score one over their peer group. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the second part, where John and Kieran will look at the various types of investors, from Hollywood actors to private equity firms, who are currently taking an interest in UK football clubs. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you.